and welcome to the Institute for Conservation Leadership podcast, a conversation about leadership, strategy, and collaboration. We are airing this conversation on April 22nd, 2016, Earth Day. The first Earth Day took place in 1970. Today, ICL President Diane Russell and I will be talking with Dan Chu, Senior Campaign Director of Our Wild America with the Sierra Club. During our conversation with Dan, we'll learn how the early years in the environmental movement influenced him and many of the environmental leaders and volunteers of today. He'll also talk about what needs to happen to make sure that Earth Day remains relevant for future generations. Today we welcome Dan Chu, Senior Campaign Director of Our Wild America at the Sierra Club. Welcome to the conversation, Dan. Thank you, Kurt. Looking forward to it. We also have Diane Russell. Diane is the president for the Institute for Conservation Leadership. Diane, welcome to the conversation. Thanks, Kurt. Dan, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you get started in the conservation community, and how did you end up in your current position at the Sierra Club? You know, going way back as, as a child, one of the things that I really anticipated growing up were these wildlife encyclopedias by mail. And so I'd get, you know, like a new A through B and then C through D uh, once a month. And I read those from cover to cover and was just really fascinated with the amazing diversity of life on Earth. And so for me, that was kind of the prompt. I then took that into college and ended up in a biology track and then in pre-med and ended up in graduate school doing kind of pretty hardcore microbiology work and just felt really unfulfilled with a path in academia. And in the late 80s, I took a master's degree and left graduate school and started door-to-door canvassing for, uh, at that time, National Wildlife Federation and just started a, a canvas in uh, Colorado. And so I canvassed for a couple of years around issues like protecting wilderness areas and reintroducing wolves into Colorado. And so that was really my start in the environmental advocacy arena. And I learned so much about just how things work or don't work in, in policy and government as well as fundraising and, and how to connect with people's uh, hearts so that they uh, help support your cause. And then from there, my, my wife and I joined the Peace Corps. We went down into Panama in the early 90s, and I worked with farmers on um, more sustainable agricultural practices, came back, became the executive director for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and worked there for four or five years on a host of public lands issues and hunting and fishing issues. Then went to the National Wildlife Federation where I was on national staff for about 15 years overseeing their affiliate network and regional staff. Uh, and then, um, gosh, just under three years ago, I was approached by the Sierra Club. They had just created a new campaign uh, after about a two-year strategic planning process called Our Wild America. And I was just really struck by their vision of a movement that would be re-energized in America and the Sierra Club's role in that, where truly a diversity of Americans would care deeply about protecting and stewarding our public lands and wildlife and also moving us away from a fossil fuel economy. So I was really excited and I came on board to the Sierra Club and um, feel like we've been just very busy building out that campaign and engaging new people in the effort. I'm really struck in listening to your story, Dan, at how unlinear your path was, and I, I guess I just wonder, there are a lot of folks that want to do things to help protect the earth, help help protect our communities. When you look back on how your careers evolved, do you have any words of wisdom for people who are 
wanting to do this kind of work professionally? I, I mean, my first word of wisdom is um, to get out there and volunteer. The beauty about volunteering is you really get to make the decision on what you want to spend your time on, and it's a wonderful way to network. And uh, for me, what, probably one of the most important uh, elements for my success in my professional career was was connecting with uh, a mentor who really saw things in me that I didn't see at the time, and uh, but was also very wise and, and really knew how to make advocacy work. So I would say volunteering, networking, and and hopefully connecting with someone or some more than one person who can be teachers and mentors for you is is probably the most effective way to get engaged in a career path for any kind of nonprofit work. Yeah, that sounds really helpful. I'm also struck when I hear your story. I mean, we're here we are headed toward the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And yeah. you've really come of age over that time period, much of that time period. And I guess I'm curious linking Earth Day to your career, but also you've got this vantage point as someone who's worked at the state and local level as well as somebody who's worked at the national level. So how, how does Earth Day feed into all of that from your perspective? That's a great question. So, you know, at the risk of letting folks know how old I am, I, I was in elementary school and uh, Earth Day, uh, the first Earth Day in 1970. And... Um, you know, the late 60s and culminating up to Earth Day, I think were really, uh, really important in crafting who I am today. I remember, you know, just environmental education and basic things like uh, going up and going out and helping to clean up litter and uh, understanding the rain cycle and all this stuff was just very much a part of the fabric of education that everybody received. And that whole kind of the late baby boomer phase, if you look at today in a lot of our uh, environmental and conservation groups and also in the federal agencies, that wave of people that uh, got that kind of education and uh, immersion in the in the 60s and early 70s are now uh, most of the leadership and uh, aging leadership in these organizations. So I think it had a tremendous impact. It, it also was kind of the golden age for a lot of uh, legislative and national protections that came about, everything from the Clean Water and Clean Air Act, you know, in the early 60s, the Wilderness Act, which was passed the same year as the Civil Rights Act. And there was just really a sense of, I think, a sense of community that our national leaders had, which was, hey, let's protect these shared assets that we all share responsibility for and put in these these common sense laws that protect air, water, and wildlife that we all care deeply about. So I, I think that that created a foundation for the professional NGOs that are out there today from the Sierra Club to the Nature Conservancy um, as some examples. And I do think, though, the flip side of that is is that we've become very professionalized in our work on uh, protecting the environment. And um, we recognize at Sierra Club that we paid a price for that where the energy around spontaneous movement and from community level up has been at risk because the sense of, well, this is a professional thing and you need lawyers and policy folks to, to push this forward. So we've, we've certainly re, redoubled our efforts to take a close look at how can we as an organization be a movement-building organization. It's interesting because I think there are a lot of tensions in the work to 
have healthy communities and have a healthy earth. I think that tension you just identified around professionalism and volunteerism is an interesting one. And it seems like Sierra Club's especially an interesting group to look at that. I mean, you guys have a very strong staff professionally and across, as for the national groups anyway, you also have one of the deepest, most active volunteer bases that exists. Yes. And it's not just in the chapters, it's also with student groups and other things that you've been able to create. How do you guys hold that intention? I mean, a few things, and um, hopefully this isn't too detailed, but for my, uh, so for the Our Wild America campaign, which is focused on advancing the land, water, wildlife, and connecting people with nature work of the Sierra Club, uh, the campaign itself has what's called a leadership team, and that leadership team is half volunteer, half staff. With a, you know, I'm the staff co-lead, and I have uh, volunteer co-leads. So we meet regularly. We talk about strategy. We, you know, discuss uh, budget uh, priorities, and also use that as a venue to really think about how we engage our grassroots in a meaningful way. So, so my first, I guess, observation is that you know the Sierra Club is intentional about providing uh, real leadership opportunities for uh, volunteers in the very uh, work that we do, you know, understanding that most of the work of the campaign is funded by restrictive funds from donors and, and funders, we still feel like it's absolutely critical that our, our volunteers and uh, chapters are are engaged in the, the strategy and the, the work moving forward. So so that's one piece I'd say is like, we, we try and address that in a very structured leadership opportunity way for volunteers to be engaged. Beyond that, you know, beyond the chapters, we also have what are called grassroots network teams, and there's 30 or 40 of them out there. Essentially, anybody can start a grassroots network team as a volunteer, as long as it's consistent with the board-approved policies of the Sierra Club. So we have grassroots network teams out there, you know, one working on borderlands and and, uh, connectivity across the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Another one that's, you know, works on grazing or another uh, that works on wildlands. And so we as, uh, you know, as staff and national are uh, always thinking about how can we support those uh, grassroots network teams so they can do the work as a network. And that includes things like trying to bring together key leaders for campaign trainings, you know, provide some resources around connectivity, be it digital work, uh, certainly fact sheets and policies, papers, and, and also assist in getting them into uh, D.C. for lobby visits and that kind of thing. So there's kind of a cool opportunity for anybody to engage on, you know, whatever work they would like to engage on if they can get the grassroots together. The, the tension is then there's always going to be expectations about, like, okay, this work's really important to me and my network. I need the national organization to be more invested and engaged in it. And that's right. where some of the tension, you know, comes about. So Right. That makes sense. So yeah. It's both about structure and creating places for people to step into, but also providing resources, even light-touch resources, like being able to connect with each other and talk and plan. The other thing I observe is that there's a opposite challenge, which is, having volunteers that that may not necessarily provide the space for new people to come in mm-hmm. um, to the leadership role. So, you know, and it's it's a double-edged sword because you have highly invested, highly engaged volunteers who've been, you know, working on, let's say, a wilderness protection issue for 30, 40 years. 
Um, and, um, you know, and it's, it's awesome. It's great. And also, you know, frankly, people who are retired have more time to volunteer Mm -hmm. and be engaged. But then, you know, frankly, how can you make sure that those folks are providing the space, the opportunity for new people to come in and actually be given leadership roles versus, you know, uh, let's get some young people in here so we can use them to help us get what we want to get done. So just acknowledging that that's an ongoing challenge, I think, for Sierra Club or any grassroots organization is is really getting your existing leadership to also focus on understanding their role is to identify, mentor uh, new leaders and eventually get out of the way. Given what you just said, Dan, do you have any best practices or lessons learned that the Sierra Club is using to actually accomplish that goal? Well, we are, uh, you know, through our diversity, equity, inclusion commitment and uh, resources, uh, we are uh, for chapters and our volunteer leaders, anytime we do trainings, beginning to incorporate key elements of diversity, equity, inclusion, how to create welcoming space. And part of that welcoming space is like understanding your role as a privileged person. Um, in a lot of cases, the, you know, people that are in leadership positions are either by the very nature of the position in a privileged position or they're from a, uh, you know, a dominant privileged culture. Our first step is getting people to understand what their privilege is and then help them figure out how to uh, translate that into, you know, providing welcoming space for new leadership to to come up. So, it's not it's not easy, right? Because if you're if you're in charge, it's it's pretty hard to say, "Well, I don't want to be in charge anymore and I trust somebody else to be in charge." Right. I wanted to go back to what you talked about, Dan, the the Earth Day and how it influenced many of the current leaders who are in their late 40s to 70s, that the boom yep. generation. And I know in terms of handing over leadership, nurturing leadership, handing over power, if you will, that tension between different age groups is, is prevalent in all workplaces and in all volunteer mm-hmm. groups. Um, yeah. I guess, that, you know, I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about as we look to the future, how how can we do that work better in terms of nurturing leaders and, and bringing them along, both across age difference, but also across race and ethnicity and language and other pieces that are really going to be true for most of, it, of the communities that our organizations are working in. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great question. I, I think, um, you know, just at the broadest level, just thinking about both internally and externally how we move to provide the space to create transformational relationships. And what I mean by that is, for instance, you know, me personally, I've been, in fact, Saturday I'm going up and having lunch with somebody in Frederick, Maryland, who reached out to me. He's a younger Asian-American professional, really interested in environmental stuff, but also is a little frustrated. He just doesn't see more engagement by um, other Asian-Americans that he's in networks of. So I feel kind of this responsibility and opportunity to have lunch with them, provide hopefully some kind of mentoring role, and um, acknowledging that's going to take me some time. You know, it's just going to take some time off my plate, and it may or may not result in anything. But just to, uh, for me on a personal level, commit to, you know, I actually want to be a role model and mentor and learn from some young Asian Americans who have been, you know, reaching out to me and, and wanting to 
to figure out how to, to have a significant role in, in um, social change. So I'd say one piece is thinking about that responsibility as a, as a mentor, but doing it in a way that also recognizes that you will likely approach it in a power dynamic or a dominant culture dynamic that you have to be very aware of, where you're not inadvertently just kind of squashing the, <laughs> the leadership of that of that up and coming uh, person because you know because you feel like you can impart all the wisdom and you have nothing to learn from them. So I certainly within the club as well, we've had conversations about one. You know, we are a number of folks are. Uh, undergoing anti-racism and white privilege uh, trainings and awareness. Um, that's being incorporated into, you know, much more into our HR trainings. Um, we have a new diversity director who's come on board and focusing on that. And, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, the Sierra Club and I'd say most of the large national green groups have a white dominant culture to them. And until we recognize that and are comfortable with Acknowledging that it's hard for us to engage with groups, entities, and individuals who aren't who aren't coming from that background of a white dominant culture. So, so I would just kind of put that out there as I think really critical work, and it's sometimes work that people aren't even aware needs to be done as they're from a good place uh, working to engage um, frontline communities and and people of color. Dan, could you just tell us what your uh, hopes and dreams are for uh, the world to be thinking about on uh, Earth Day 2016? Well, I, I'd say at the broadest level, uh, the Sierra Club and, and I at a personal level, because I have two kids, feel the biggest challenge we're facing right now is is climate change. And embedded within that is our our world dependence on fossil fuel and the fossil fuel economy. So, so for this Earth Day, I, I just I really think it's a tremendous opportunity, um, especially in an election year, to highlight that it's an issue that affects all of us. It's really uh, transcends environment. It's a social issue. It you know it's driving everything from refugees to people dying from uh, superstorms, and that we all need to come together and do difficult things to get ahead of the climate change challenge. So I, I really feel that. This Earth Day, for me, that issue of climate change and moving to a clean energy future is absolutely core. And there you have it. Climate change is top of mind as we celebrate this Earth Day 2016. Dan Chu, thank you so very much for this great conversation. I really appreciate your perspective. And Diane, thank you for joining this conversation and, and really leading the conversation. It was really a great way to honor Earth Day in 2016. Thank you both very much. Keeping a large organization like the Sierra Club grounded and connected to the grassroots movement is no easy task. But as you've heard, the Sierra Club continues to be member-centric by being intentional on how they engage with their membership, while at the same time bridging the gap on age, gender, race, and culture. Keep an eye out for more great episodes coming from ICL in the field. We'll be producing more great stories from the community and highlighting the great work that is being done to support the conservation sector. We'll see you all soon.